Welcome to Off the Clock, a podcast by Procina Wells and Woodland, where we take a team-centered, family-focused approach to serving the estate planning and elder law needs of our community on the Eastern Shore. I'm Amber Woodland, one of the attorneys at PWW Law, and I'm joined today by Michelle Procina Wells, one of our other attorneys. We're excited to talk about one of our favorite topics, trust, and how to administer a trust. So let's jump right in. Great. Sounds good. Yeah, great. So... <laughs> We talk so much about trust in our office. We actually create trust probably daily for our clients. And I think we should start just generally recapping a trust and the whole box concept <laughs> and and how a trust really is created and right. then funded. Okay. Yeah. So trust, it's interesting because people, um, I've had so many experiences as I'm sure you have, where people think a trust is this big sort of scary ceremonial sort of thing. And I try to, to, you know, assure people that it is just words on paper and those words can, can say whatever, you know, there's a lot of legal technical stuff that needs to be part of those words, but ultimately those words are just going to reflect the person's wishes who's creating the trust. But it's as simple as that. It's creating a document that's going to include a person's wishes. The concept of the box, I love this. And some people think of it as a box or a bucket or a pot, you know, whatever it is, whatever type of container it is. You know, you create the trust document, you have the paper and assume, you know, think of it as a box. And I always say, you know, imagine the word trust, you know, on the outside of the box. And then you're going to put assets in that box by retitling them, by perhaps naming the trust as a beneficiary. Um, And once you put those assets in, the box, the box controls them. I know we're going to go over, you know, the the trustee and all the people, but ultimately, you know, then you, when you create that trust, you select who then gets to manage that trust. And I always think of that as, you know, that's the person who's carrying the box around. Yeah. Let's go ahead and talk about the players of the trust. So the person who gets to hold the box and carry it around and manage it is called the the trustee. trustee. Right. Yeah. So then other players, so you have the maker of the trust, we call it the grantor or the trustor in simple terms, the trust maker. And then the manager is the trustee. Right. And so the trust maker can be in some trusts, the trustee. So it's a dual role. And in some trusts, they're two separate roles. It just all depends on the type of trust and the goals to be accomplished. Right. And then you've got beneficiaries. So you've got people who can benefit from what's in the box during the trust maker's lifetime. And then you've got who can benefit from the trust upon the trust maker's death. Right. And again, they could be the same people or they might be different people. And it, again, depends on the type of trust that's being created. You know, a standard revocable trust trust, if I create a revocable trust as a probate avoidance estate planning tool, I'm going to be wearing a bunch of hats. I'm right. going to be the trust maker. I'm going to be my own trustee so I get to manage it. But I'm also going to be the lifetime beneficiary of that trust because the assets are for my use during my lifetime. As opposed to perhaps like a, an irrevocable asset protection trust, I'm the trust maker, but I'm going to appoint someone else as the trustee. And then I'm going to name lifetime beneficiaries, you know, people, other people, other than me who can benefit from those assets during my lifetime. Perfect. And the other, I think the only other player we sometimes see in the trust that we draft is something called a trust protector. Right, right. Doesn't come up every time, but that's what it sounds like. Right, right. The, the person who's appointed to potentially name someone to protect the integrity of the trust right. and the trust maker's right. intent. Quick summary, though, about the benefits of a trust and why we rely on trust so much more than we rely on potentially other end-of-life estate planning documents. Just a little bit about that and and why we put such emphasis on even talking about trust. And then the focus of today's episode is how we then administer the trust. Right, right. 
So trusts, again, you know, there's all different kinds of trusts. So the benefits vary greatly depending on what the goal was when the trust was created. So, but in, you know, in a nutshell, they control your wealth in whatever way you want that to be controlled. So again, a standard revocable trust is going to control it while I'm living, allow me full use and access to my assets, but have very specific instruction for what's to occur with those assets if I become incapacitated and then upon my death. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, so so uh, whereas a, a, an asset protection trust, again, you know, that's going to, you know, the goal of that, my the wealth control is to protect assets in the event I need long-term care. Um, trusts, another benefit, a huge benefit it is privacy. And that's really important to a lot of people. A lot of our clients love the privacy yeah, aspect. Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, a trust never becomes a public document. Mm-hmm. And even when we create trusts, we actually prepare a separate, what's called a trust certification, which is just a, a summary of the trust formalities. And so, whereas with an estate, when a person has an estate and their estate has to go through probate, their will, uh, everything becomes a public record. And trusts are never exposed to that. Um, I think, too, in that same respect, it, it uh, helps control conflict upon a person's death Absolutely. because you don't have that whole public process with time periods and deadlines. And it makes it really easy if there's a troublemaker in the family <laughs> to, to come and make trouble. Right. Um, and then certainly, you know, the probate avoidance aspect, you know, the, the benefits of a trust, a properly funded trust. Right. So we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. And when, yeah, so with asset alignment, we'll talk about that. Um, but the probate avoidance saves time, paperwork, expense. Um, so for folks that, you know, their goal is to make the process as easy for their loved ones as possible, trust is definitely the, the way to go. Um, and then legacy protection. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, you know, for people who are really concerned about um, after they're gone, you know, how their assets will ultimately be distribute, distributed. And if they perhaps have minor beneficiaries or disabled beneficiaries or beneficiaries who just need a little extra <laughs> protection. Um, and, and it allows you to designate um, in percentages or dollar amounts, special gifts. So a trust is a really great tool um, to be able to make sure that your wishes are carried out. And again, that that's in conjunction with the fact that once you put all those assets in the trust, you know, we have so many clients who want to put people's names on their assets or they want to put beneficiary designations on all their assets. And then they have to keep track of all that. Whereas if you put it all in the in the box and then the trust document one document Mm -hmm. allows you to make sure that your legacy is distributed how you want you have so much more control and protection and you have the built-in contingency provisions that you don't get through other means like joint ownership or beneficiary designations so yeah clients seem people in general just seem to love beneficiary designations Mm -hmm. and you know people at the bank will say oh you can add beneficiaries to your bank account their investment advisor will say oh you can add beneficiaries and are those you know they're called what TOD transfer Mm -hmm. on death or POD payable on death designations and when you do that you're naming a person right and there's no protection Mm -hmm. Whereas if you name the trust, mm-hmm. you've got all those contingency provisions built in. And so it is such, it's much, much smarter planning. And that probate avoidance feature of a trust is something that almost all of our clients want to accomplish because it makes their family's lives easier. Right. So I often describe it to my clients as you're doing a little bit of extra work now to save a whole bunch of work later 
in addition to maintaining privacy and speeding up the process and reducing the expense of administering those assets. But the only way it ever works is if the trust is properly funded. Right. And so I think a trap we often see is client has a trust, they signed it. So they've got the words on the piece of paper, they've created the box, but the box is completely empty. And the box is never gonna work unless it's funded properly with the assets. So just a word maybe about asset alignment, because we're gonna talk about that exclusively in a separate episode, but how important it is to take the assets of the client and put it, put them in the trust and how then the trust works. Yeah, it is one of the biggest planning mistakes we see people make. Mm-hmm. Um, they have this, this great false sense of security that these documents that they've created, and the documents are necessary. You know, you've gotta have them and they gotta reflect your wishes. But when you create a trust, you have to be committed to making sure that assets are transferred to it and committed to keeping that intact over time. Because that's kind of the second part of the mistake. So when you create a trust, um, you have to look at, you know, how your assets are titled and should those assets be retitled in the name of the trust. Mm-hmm. So that's as simple as you have a bank account in your individual name. You go to the bank, you show them the trust, you ask them to rename the account in the name of the trust. Um, in, and so then someday upon your incapacity or death, the trust is the owner mm-hmm. of the asset. And that's what allows those assets to avoid probate at your death. Um, you perhaps name the trust as beneficiary on assets like life insurance or non-qualified annuities or, you know, and that that's always has to be a discussion, mm-hmm. you know, with, with the attorney. Um, but that's all part of making sure that the assets are inside the box, like you said, because anything that's hanging outside the box at your death is potentially still subject to probate. Right. And that is such an unfortunate thing when we see someone pass away and they have a perfectly written trust mm-hmm. But yet we still have to probate their estate because not everything was in the trust or they created the trust years ago and maybe everything was intact then. But over time, they changed banks, they bought a new house and they forgot about the trust. So really important to keep up with that. Yeah, that asset list, we use that so intense in, right. intentionally in our office to you as a checklist yeah. to make sure no asset is missed right it's like no assets left behind <laughs> right we want to make sure that everything is properly aligned with the plan right. so that then when the trust maker dies and it's time for the trustee to then administer the trust it's very clear on what has to be done because the assets are the first piece of information that the successor trustee needs to to have in order to understand what needs to be done. So really the focus is to look at the role of the trustee after the trust maker's death. So will you walk us through the first kind of handful of tasks that the trustee needs to perform upon the trust maker's death? Right. So the first, which is very basic, mm-hmm. is, you know, review the trust. Mm-hmm. Make sure you read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Make sure that you understand um, what the trust says and, you know, and and get it, get get counsel, get advice, um, you know, understand that, that, you know, for a person, a trustee who perhaps this might be their first time ever, um, you know, having experience with a trust, you know, to make sure that they get some help. You have to identify the beneficiaries. You know, who, who will this trust benefit? Are they minors? Are they 
they perhaps disabled? Are there special provisions related to how they will inherit or when they will inherit? So you got to be really familiar with that. Um, you know, and then sort of the nuts and bolts, you have to get a tax ID number or an employer identification number for the trust. You know, when a person passes away, uh, you know, you're not supposed to continue using their social security number. So you get that tax ID number, you open a bank account mm. in the trust's name, if there's not one already. Right. Lots of times, again, if the trust were properly funded mm-hmm. while the trust maker was living, there should be a bank account. And so you can continue using that account. You just notify the bank that now you're the successor trustee mm-hmm. or you can open a a new account in the name of the trust and make sure that the bank has all of that. And then while managing the trust assets, it's really important um, to follow what's called the prudent investor rule. And that's part of what's called, uh, you know, your fiduciary duty. Um, You know, a trustee is considered a fiduciary. That's Mm -hmm. one of those, you know, legal technical terms. But what that means is that a trustee is going to be managing assets for the benefit of someone else. And, you know, that, that brings some pretty, you know, high responsibility mm-hmm. with it. And so um, the prudent investor rule means that if, you know, you've got a million dollars in the estate, you don't put it in just a checking account that doesn't have any interest, right? <laughs> you know, uh, where perhaps you have some, you got to have some in the checking account, but that you keep the bulk of those assets still invested. They don't need to be invested in the riskiest stock that's out there, but they should be invested prudently. And, and typically if it's a large estate, a large trust, that's going to require the help of a qualified advisor. One of the basic things that you mentioned about identifying who the beneficiaries even are under the terms of the trust seems so simple. But I think in our experience, we've learned not only do we need the name of the beneficiary, but we need good contact information for the beneficiary. We need to understand if the beneficiary is a minor or incapacitated. So I think when the trust maker is creating their estate plan, leaving that information for the successor trustee is critical, but then the trustee himself or herself needs to initially identify that so that they can notify the beneficiaries early on in the process. I'm also thinking about, I was sitting in a continuing education course one time and a light bulb went off because if, if a client wants to disinherit someone, doing it through a trust is always the better way to go because only the identified beneficiaries under the trust terms even have standing. That's Those are the only people who the trustee has a fiduciary duty to. And right. I thought, wow, you know, if, if someone wants to not include a beneficiary, doing it through a trust is really a great way of doing it because then they don't have, they don't have any right. standing right. to know what's happening under the trust, but the named beneficiaries do. And it's right. super important that the trustee continue to communicate with the beneficiaries. And so that leads me to the assets of the trust playing off of the prudent investor rule. (laughs) But we've also got to identify the assets, marshal the assets, talk to the financial advisor. Sometimes there's retirement account issues. So you want to expand upon that just a little bit. So all of that, you know, oftentimes people want a specific list. Okay, exactly. What do I have to do when, you know, I become a trustee? And, you know, you really have to know what all of the assets are. And you kind of, you just sort of take one asset Mm -hmm. at a time. Mm -hmm. That's that process of managing and 
controlling the assets. And that's a process. Mm-hmm. It, it takes some time. You know, that's all part of, I always refer to it as, you know, wrapping up the decedent's affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you have to just take it one step at a time and, and expect that it's going to take, you know, several months, could take a year, mm-hmm. you know, to get through that process, depending on the complexity. But part of that is going to be ordering appraisals um, or valuations, you know, having the real estate appraised. You, you always want to have it appraised unless it's going to be sold immediately, but you typically otherwise want to have it appraised, you know, valuing stock. If there are um, valuable personal possessions, you know, getting those valued uh, and then determining which assets should be sold or liquidated. Most trusts allow a beneficiary to receive assets in kind, which means, you know, if I um, am, a, am, a, am a beneficiary and the decedent owned a car that was worth five grand, maybe I say, you know, I'd really like to have the car mm-hmm. and somebody else gets five grand of stock or cash. So it doesn't mean that all of the assets have to be liquidated. Um, the assets can be distributed in kind. And so the trustee needs to be looking at that and making those decisions. And that's typically going to involve talking with the beneficiary and staying in contact with them. And definitely using advisors. Um, we can't emphasize that enough, especially if there are um, tax-deferred mm-hmm. types of assets, things like uh, IRAs or other qualified retirement plans, even some annuities. Um, so really important. You know, the, the estate planning, estate administration, trust administration team is always going to consist of, you know, a, a qualified attorney, a financial advisor, and an accountant. Um, so to make sure that the trustee is really doing their job properly. Um, filing claim forms. If the trust was named as a beneficiary on, say, a life insurance policy, going through that process. And then documenting all of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, documenting the payment of all the bills, because that's a huge part mm-hmm. of trust administration. you got to pay the decedent's final bills. You have to pay any bills or expenses that come up as part of the administration process. And then keeping track of all of that. Because, again, that fiduciary duty requires the trustee to account for all of that to the beneficiaries. Right. One of the things I think that often takes time, even with a trust, is distributing the personal property yes. and selling the real estate. Yes. And cleaning out the real estate. Cleaning out the real estate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And sometimes trusts have provisions that directs the sale even mm-hmm. of the real estate. So the cleaning out of the tangible property has to happen first in order for the property to be sold. And Yet the trustee is still under those fiduciary duties to make sure that those things happen promptly. Right. What about if there are provisions in a trust that have specific dollar amounts or specific pieces of property or specific accounts that should pass? Talk a little bit about when distributions happen from a trust and if there are specifically listed assets that go versus the pot or the residue being distributed and the timeline for when that typically happens as part of trust administration. So the 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 timing is always interesting. I mean, the great thing about trust administration is that you don't have statutory time periods like you do with state administration when you have to go through the probate process. Mm-hmm. So the trustee is going to have a lot more flexibility. Um, there is, regardless though, whether there's a will or a trust, whether there's probate or not, there is there are statutes that allow creditors to present claims against an estate um, or potentially a trust. And so it's always really important. That's an eight-month time period in Delaware and a six-month time period in Maryland. So if I could have my way I'd wave my, and wave my magic wand, I would never have any distributions be made until either that eight-month or six-month time period. 
has passed because that's going to give the absolute best protection to the trustee. But mm-hmm. <laughs> with trust administration, the trustee is going to have some discretion with that. And if the trustee, if there are significant assets in the trust, if the trustee, you know, say it's, you know, the trustee, maybe mom passed away and the trustee was perhaps involved with mom's finances while mom was living. And the trustee feels absolutely confident that mom didn't have any debts and really is not worried about that creditor period. So in those cases, sometimes the trustee might make those kinds of specific distributions if, you know, there's a thousand dollars to go to the church. You know, the trustee can typically do those types of distributions pretty early in the process. Um, and so, like I say, some discretion, if it's a $100,000 gift and there's only, you know, $150,000 worth of assets, I'd say, oh, oh no, wait, wait until, a second. Yeah, wait yeah. until that creditor period. Um, the personal possessions kind of goes with the same rule, you know, so if, if, you know, dad left his Rolex, uh, you know, to son, um, and you know, the, the estate looks like it's pretty liquid and there's really no fear that the Rolex might have to be sold to pay debts, then typically that's something that can be done pretty early on. Otherwise, you know, final distributions, typically you want to wait until everything is done, um, because the trustee needs to be, you know, certain that all bills have been paid, that there aren't any creditors, and that's how a trustee is going to protect themselves from claims. I think we need to let our listeners know, too, that anytime we advise our trustees to make a distribution, we have them have the beneficiary sign a release. So I I call it the receipt. (laughs) And I think you do the same thing. But just a word about why we do that as just really a tracking and out of protection for the trustee and making those distributions especially the final distribution. Yeah. When we are representing a trustee, you know, our job is to protect the trustee. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, anytime a beneficiary is receiving a distribution, whether it's the church receiving that thousand dollars, whether it's son who's getting the watch or whether it's, you know, daughter who's receiving her one third share once all the administration is complete. Um, we ask those beneficiaries to sign a release and waiver document. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's much easier to call it a receipt, but it's basically acknowledging receipt mm-hmm. of whatever that distribution was. And it also has some language in it saying, Saying that, you know, if something goes terribly wrong and the trustee, you know, all of a sudden towards the end of the administration realizes that there was some creditor that was unknown, um, that beneficiary is saying, yeah, I'll chip back in my fair share. Mm-hmm. I'm going to knock on some wood. Yeah. Thank God we've never Please. had to actually use that. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully never will. But it's just one extra protection for the trustee. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, too, the final distribution Um, releases, you know, also release the trustee from any complaints, (laughs) any type of liability um, for, you know, what they've done throughout the administration. Yeah. And the, and the, the ongoing responsibility to the trustee. Right. Right. So I, I think in, in my mind, there are always other tasks that a trustee has to perform, filing tax returns, final tax return for the decedent, and possibly having to file tax returns for the trust may come up as part of the administration process. But I think in wrapping up this episode, we really want to highlight that, there, yes, there are still administrative tasks that have to happen when we utilize a trust, but what we have completely eliminated when we've used a trust and used it properly is probate. Right. And just just as we close up this episode, talk about that distinction and how much we save and and what we save by not having to go through the probate process and using a trust instead. Right. 
Yeah. And I, I want to point out, you know, we have a separate episode. So for our listeners, you know, we have a whole episode that talks about probate and all that's required as part of it and all of the steps and deadlines, deadlines and paperwork. But, but yeah, what's saved is, you know, so the, the probate process for even the most simple estates usually takes at least a year. Mm-hmm. I've got an estate right now, which thank goodness we are finally closing, which has been open for seven years wow. because of all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but that during that probate process, you know, there's opening documents and filing fees. There's an inventory that has to be filed with filing fees. There's accountings, there's closing documents, all of it, there are filing fees. Mm-hmm. There's newspaper advertisement with fees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's um, counselors. There's there's, a, there's attorneys, <laughs> there's accountants, there's yeah. lots of fees. Yeah. Um, and there's all that paperwork mm-hmm. that has to be prepared and filed at the Register of Wills office. Um, some counties charge uh, an actual percentage fee. Like, for example, in Sussex County mm-hmm. in Delaware, um, the county charges a one and a quarter percent closing fee, mm-hmm. which, you know, one and a quarter percent doesn't sound like a lot. But when you do the math mm-hmm. on, a, on a larger estate, that can be a huge amount. So there's cost savings. There's a huge time savings. Uh, there's a huge savings of the work to be done, the paperwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so all of that, you know, just makes the the job of the trustee with a trust administration so much easier Mm -hmm. and faster. Yes, there's still work to be done, right? Right, Because you're you're still wrapping up the decedent's affairs. There's still going to be bills to be paid. There's still going to be assets to be collected and administered and then distributed. But the trust administration process compared to the probate process is so much easier and faster and less expensive. And I think when we communicate that to our estate planning clients and they see the distinction, that's why I'd say 95% of them opt for the trust because it makes it easier, less expensive and more private every single time. Absolutely. So thanks for being with us and talking about trust administration today. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks for being with us today on Off the Clock. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at pwwlaw.com. Of course, you can contact us directly by calling 302-628-4140 or emailing info at pwwlaw.com. We're here to help you plan today to protect your families tomorrow. See you next time. Anything discussed on Off the Clock is for general informational purposes only and is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. To obtain the most reliable guidance, listeners are encouraged to seek personalized advice from qualified professionals.